It's time for the tactics meeting. Episode 9, In Situ Burning with Al Allen, for Monday, March 15th, 2021. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Alan, Al Allen, or Alan Allen, you, Al or Alan, Al? <laughs> the women in my life, like my wife and my mother, call me Alan, uh, but almost everyone else refers to me as Al. <laughs> so, Al, how did you, you're a, really a pillar of the oil spill community, one of the elder statesmen, but you didn't start off heading into environmental work or oil spill response work. You were on your way to a PhD in physics, particle colliders, and could have been involved in putting the rover on Mars that we just watched land. How did you go from that course to oil spill response? You know, that's a a wonderful topic because I, I couldn't believe in my earlier years that I would ever end up burning oil at sea and getting so much enjoyment from it. My path was headed for um, science, something to do with science. I had a wonderful physics teacher in high school that got me on a path uh, that I uh, kept for a long time, majored in physics at college, went on to RPI, thought I'd get a, a PhD in nuclear physics But only a few months into that program with a fully paid fellowship, uh, having just spent a summer at Woods Hole and going to sea and experiencing that kind of a life, I just could not focus on anything to do with bombarding particles and possibly living underground with these instrumentation packages that would almost never let me see the light of of day, sunshine. And uh, having smelled that seawater and lived with the people at Woods Hole, uh, I just went in and I told them, I'm done. I don't want this degree. They thought I was crazy. They said, you can't turn this down. I said, watch me. And I left like the next day. (laughs) And and I I went back to uh, my home, told my folks, everybody agreed, I am crazy. Uh, I said, I just, I need to uh, start over again. And so I thought, well, what can I do? How can I get some more sea experience? I thought, maybe I'll join the Navy. I, I've always loved submarines. And, and so I joined the Navy, try to make this as short as I can for you. Joined the Navy, spent five years in the Navy. I lied to them about my college education. It, it was sort of a lie through omission. You know, uh, were you a nuclear tech? Did you go on subs or aircraft well, I carriers? Eventually or? did. Eventually did. But I, I enlisted, not telling them I had a degree because I thought if I go on to become an officer, I really want to, um, you know, have the experience of the enlisted man. I thought I'd better understand their life, their challenges, and so I spent a year enlisted, and then I told them the truth. Then I said, "Oh, by the way, I have a degree." Uh, can I go to officer candidate school? Well, oh my God, I got in a lot of trouble for that. Why wow, uh, I get in trouble? You were you were having your own two years before the mast. <laughs> yes, but they they finally uh, sent me to officer candidate school. I got through there, 
And, uh, and then I went on and went into subsequent and uh, loved submarines. But um, uh, let's say events in my life that were related to my first marriage made it very clear that uh, that marriage would not work if I stayed in the Navy. And that, that was a tough thing to, to deal with because I loved the subs. Uh, but my, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to be as kind as I can. And I won't mention names or anything, but let's just say uh, the, the benefit of everyone involved, I decided to uh, get out of the Navy. And um, I did spend some time at the Naval Academy prep school teaching physics and that was good. But when I got done with that, I tried to shake the nuclear and the physics thing a little bit found a job in Santa Barbara, California, uh, but uh, they knew of my nuclear background. And so they were saying, well, look, we need you to design uh, bombs and rockets and missiles. And I spent another five years uh, in missile defense. I mean, I kept getting on these paths that just were not satisfying. Um, so I, I did that for a while and I started diving on natural oil seas right in my backyard, practically a couple of miles from my home uh, there in Goleta, California. And by diving on the natural oil seeps, I discovered that oil behavior on water is a really fascinating thing. And so I was measuring the flow rates of oil coming out of the ocean floor and all that. And what happens? This is like in the mid 60s. Well, this is in uh, your spare time, right? This is what you're doing yeah. for recreation. This, this is purely for fun on weekends. I'm so this is really this. back to the whole idea that maybe you are crazy. <laughs> and, and clearly it became true along the way. <laughs> but my employer put up with me doing that. As long as I designed uh, you know, high yield nuclear explosions uh, for defending against missiles coming in, I guess, from Russia. But during the week, he would let me dive on natural seeps. Well, lo and behold, what happens? 1969, Santa Barbara blowout. And I happened to hear about something going on offshore. So my buddy and I, he has a, a little Cessna 150. And I said, let's go out and check it out. We fly out over, I take some pictures. Um, the oil is spreading like crazy from the blowout. And uh, <clears throat> I come back to the office and my boss says, what in the heck are you doing? Where were you? said, yeah, I hope you didn't mind. I took a little time off today to go out and check this thing going on offshore. And he says, well, what, what did what'd you find? And I said, well, I, I used my techniques on the natural seeps on this thing going on. I, I didn't even know what a blowout was. And it turned out that my numbers were about 5,000 barrels per day, oil coming from this platform. Well, he said, sit right there, don't move. He leaves my office. About an hour later, he comes back with, it was Channel 4, um, it's Santa Barbara News Press, uh, people from the uh, newspaper. And he says, tell them what you just told me. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I tell them the story and what my numbers are. And in answer to your question, this is a long answer, but it turns out that Union Oil had, had had this blowout, and they were saying it was releasing oil at about 500 barrels a day. And my numbers were saying 5,000. 
So I get home that day and my wife's standing out in the street with her arms folded, looking at me like, you are insane. What did you do? Did she see you on the news? Yes, she had already seen me on the news and she shows me the newspaper and across the, the top of the newspaper, first page, front page, it says, Al Allen challenges oil industry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you wanted an answer. That's how I got into this business because within a very short time after that, I, uh, I found myself back before the U.S. Senate testifying as to the magnitude of the spill. And of course that went on because they wanted more information, not only on the magnitude of it, but the impacts uh, and so on. So I was launched into a career, whether I wanted it or not. And uh, I ended up in court for about, I'd say close to four years. And at the end of that time, I was the only uh, witness that survived excruciating interrogation by the lawyers from the oil companies trying to disprove my numbers and say that I didn't know what I was talking about. Turned out I was right. Separate studies proved I was right. And uh, from then on, oil companies kept calling me and saying, hey, we got a spill. Come on down here. Tell us how much is spilling. And gradually it just expanded. I soon found myself thinking about how can you clean up these spills? How can I... Uh, minimize the impact of the spills, not just how much oil is spilled. So you never actually intended to get into oil spill cleanup. Oh, you were gosh. fascinated by what Mother Nature was doing subsea yeah. and what happened to these hydrocarbon <clears throat> molecules as they rose and dispersed <clears throat> in the water column and spread out on the surface and some natural curiosity and an affinity for math <laughs> got you into trouble. Well, it sure did. <laughs> I dreamed I'd be pulled back to DC. To so how much of, how much of uh, your ability to survive this interrogation had to do with this really rock solid uh, foundation that you had in science? Well, quite a bit, actually. I, I found that I was continually using uh, you know, the physics, the math, and various other areas of science that benefited me. And I, and I went back to grad school while I was in Santa Barbara there, and uh, UCLA and a few other places. I, I went back and I took uh, oceanography courses, marine biology, um, several courses, petroleum engineering as well. And I did that for about 10 years while I was working in this field. Um, one of, the, one of the most exciting things that came along during that period was um, NOAA was concerned about people using sinking agents. If you can believe that we actually did that in the Santa Barbara blowout, they had put sinking agents on the oil. You'll get it off the surface. You know, nobody can see the, the oil or its impacts. And um, so they funded uh, three of us to go live in a hydrolab which was on the ocean floor, 50 feet down in the Bahamas. And we'd live there for a week at a time, putting oil out in a controlled way on the coral knolls and studying the impact of oil that would attach to sediment as if it might do that in the natural environment, sink to the ocean floor. And um, you know how, how that would uh, impact every, all of the various benthic communities. Um, that was fascinating. So we did that uh, for a couple of years and 
uh, we definitely prove that you do not want to sink delivery. You want to get it on the surface as quickly as you can. And, and so that really started me thinking about the uh, really sad situation that we had back in the 60s as far as mechanical recovery of oil. And uh, I've, I've got three patents now on various things, uh, a dispersion package, uh, mechanical boom, and then the, uh, the burning fire boom that I talked about. So what, so what is the sinking agent that they, they use? So it, you know, I came to oil spill response with Clean Sound Cooperative in 1997, and sinking agents were not in the toolkit, right? So well, you can be, yeah, you can be sure they weren't. They were not in the toolkit. Dispersants yeah. are. Dispersants are in the toolkit. And, yeah. and we uh, hopefully we'll have a, a minute to, to talk about a little bit of that as, as well. But, you know, how did these sinking agents work and what happens to the oil once it's on the bottom? Well, the problem was, you know, they would use anything from, I guess, chalk to uh, sediment to, you could just throw anything on there uh, that was a little bit heavier than water. Oil would stick to it take it to the ocean floor. I remember a few weeks after the Santa Barbara blowout, I went down and did a dive off of uh, Carpentaria and there was oil on the ocean floor just off, just a little bit deeper than the uh, tidal zone and the breaking waves uh, and that depth out to, I'd say about 20 feet. And there was oil accumulated in straw that they had put on the oil and hay, uh, some of which had sunk. And uh, oil was there in a, in a condition that was a lot like mayonnaise. And it was a light brown to orange color. It was highly emulsified. And, um, and it of course had just suffocated everything on the ocean floor because it was a good six to eight inches. Deep. And I, you know, dove on that for a couple of weeks and, and checked it out, and, and it would break up eventually. But uh, you could see it was devastating in terms of its impact on the ocean. Suffocation, big, big problem. Okay, so you saw them using these sinking agents, and you're <clears throat> thinking it's got to be a better way. So yeah. you were thinking about how do you get it off the how do you get it off the surface? How do we get it before it starts to, to sink? Pick it up from there, Al. <laughs> well, you know, you, you had things like back trucks and other ways of sucking oil off the surface, but gradually manufacturers started to realize there's a market and they started to improve on their suction devices. And so they developed uh, skimmers that would not only suck oil from the surface, but they would start to uh, look for ways to maybe um, use a, like a rotating drum um, or something that would have uh, fibers on it, like uh, rope mops. You may recall the rope mop skimmers. Um, and and these, these things had some merit. I mean, boy, I love the rope mop skimmer. We used it in Alaska quite a bit in, in cold weather uh, situations, even with oil spills under ice. Um, the uh, rope mop was very effective with a very high efficiency, very little water would stick to it, mostly oil. 
and the, the Marco belt skimmers with their with yeah. their uh, backing belt for slightly heavier oils and their their mm -hmm. uh, fuzzy belt for lighter mm -hmm. products are pretty effective. Yeah, and then the, you know and then the discs uh, and then they eventually created the fuzzy discs, if you will. And yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of technology that has improved it, but the problem. I was discovering was not so much the skimmer itself, but the concept of oil and counter rate. Yep. And that's that's when I wrote my paper. I don't know if you ever saw that. I actually pulled it out right here. I can't believe it. 1988 comparison of response options for offshore oil spills. Oh, I was still getting out of the Coast Guard in 1988 and didn't know, didn't, had never heard of oil spills myself. <laughs> well, this was back, <clears throat> excuse me, this was back, uh, what's that, over 30 years ago. And uh, the encounter rate was the big issue. And I started calculating for the various response options for uh, trying to intercept oil on the surface of the sea with booms moving in a continuous mode, either towing the boom or pushing booms, short booms ahead of you. Whatever the technique was that you wanted to work with, you know, it just simply comes down to the swath of your system and the speed with which you can move to determine an aerial coverage rate. That's A-R-E-A-L, aerial coverage rate. And um, those aerial coverage rates I put into the paper and then compared them with uh, burning and dispersants and published the paper. And people realized that that was really giving people a clue as to what would be the best response option under different conditions. Um, if you look at aerial coverage rate alone, dispersants, especially applied from fixed wing aircraft is by far the winner. I mean, we can we can cover just huge areas, a half square mile, square mile easily in a day with a large system, and um, there's no way we're going to cover that much with something moving at uh, you know a, a tenth the speed. I mean, uh, the aircraft's flying at maybe 100 miles an hour, 140 miles per hour, and uh, we're looking at something moving at uh, uh, a knot. Yeah, knot and a half. You get, up yeah. over, you get up over two knots and you might as well not be doing it at all. Yeah, so the comparison for aerial coverage rate was clear. And then for burning, it wasn't any better because, I mean, you still have to drag booms through the sea, try to collect oil and then ignite it. Well, your rate of covering area is very slow. So dispersants, uh, even with vessels, is, is very, very competitive. But it's got all the other downsides to it, as you know, um, in that people are very concerned about throwing what they consider another pollutant on top of oil and uh, making it go away. And a lot of people thought that, well, if it disappears off the surface, you've sunk it, right. which is not the case, you're not sinking oil. You're just changing surface tension so that it can break up into gazillion uh, teeny weeny little droplets and and if they're small enough, of course, they just stay suspended in the upper, uh, maybe five to 10 meters of the, the water surface, near the surface, and they, uh, they break down and, and uh, back down to carbon dioxide and water. And so have a, 
a short-term elevated hydrocarbon concentration in the shallow waters, but we can probably deal with that when you look at the scale of the uh, impact, it's relatively small, um, and the, the duration of exposure is relatively short. So you, you have a, a higher impact for a short time on a relatively small area, and then the, the oil breaks down and goes away. <clears throat> now, with mechanical, of course, the best thing is you're picking it up, taking it away, and uh, the efficiencies are nowhere as, ne as nearly as good, typically as a well-applied dispersant. But with some of the best skimmers, we do have some pretty high efficiency. They can get up in the 80, 90% range. And they have the advantage that we're actually removing the oil from the environment at the time that we in, encounter it. So there's a plus there over, yeah. over in the short term over dispersants, which haven't actually removed. It takes some time before we've actually broken the oil back down and, and converted it to water and carbon dioxide. There's a, there's a interesting point is that even after you pick it up, though, you still have to get rid of it. So you, oh, you still, still have to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, no, you do. You have to get rid of it. Of course, from an oil spill responder's perspective, once I have it in a tank out of the water, yeah, not really my problem anymore, right? I mean, it's still somebody's problem, but as a boat driver or response yeah. manager, my my, I can just sort of go slap my hands and say, my my work here is done, right? <laughs> but in reality, of course, we all know that there's the the danger of re-spilling it and taking it from the offshore area to the storage area back onshore. You have the problem of if you're going to put it in a landfill, you still have impacts there. Uh, you may even decide to burn it. <laughs> right. And of course, that was an interesting argument when people that were opposed to uh, burning oil at sea, they didn't like the fact that this made black smoke and had a, an impact on the air. And yet, <laughs> Sometimes they were approving the burning of the oil that you mechanically recovered, and that's still having an impact on the air. So as time went on, I began to realize that when you looked at the realistic comparison of the efficiencies of response options, when you looked at the relative impacts of each, I started to really accept controlled burning as one that had the least overall impact and a very, very high elimination rate. I mean, uh, when, when you can just take the number, which is 0.07 gallons per minute per square foot, when you take that number and multiply it by the areas of a burn, you can be eliminating thousands of barrels of oil very, very quickly. And it's those rates of elimination that started to make people perk up and look at it. And, you know, of course, the hardest thing we had to deal with for decades, maybe even today, at times people still need to go through the education process on what is in that black smoke, how long does it last? And it turns out that the impacts are pretty minimal. And even during the Deepwater Horizon, when we burned what, what was the top number was around 300,000 barrels of oil. 
Um, we were fortunate in that, yes, it was tens of miles offshore. So there weren't a lot of people on the shoreline that were even witnessing the black smoke, but the impacts were very, very small. The trade-off of black soot, you know, going into the air for a short period of time uh, is far less troublesome than let's say not burning that same oil and having it spreading out on the sea, having impacts while it's on the sea, some of it sinking, and then some of it obviously coming into shorelines. So the trade-offs of impacts of burning versus dispersants and mechanical, I think in the in the long run are far less. So when did you first decide that burning was a good idea? When did you first try this out? And were you the first to do it? Well, I was the first one to uh, do a, a actual burn during a spill event. And that was during the Exxon Valdez. We, uh, we had done, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of burns. We had gone off to uh, off, uh, England. We had done some burns. We had done some in Canada, uh, several in the US, uh, a lot of smaller burns. But we had actually gone to sea off of Newfoundland. Uh, that was a famous burn uh, that uh, Murfingus was very active in, in creating. And uh, what was that back in the 90s, I believe it was. We, we uh, have to go back and check my dates on that. But, uh, you know, some of these burns were very um, effective in showing that under controlled conditions, we could burn oil and measure the uh, burn rate measure the residue that was left and even study the impacts. Or in the Newfoundland burn, for example, we even had a small submarine that was remote controlled that went under the water because some people were concerned that we were boiling critters. They actually thought you guys are elevating the temperatures of the water and, and boiling critters. Well, they obviously don't have a good understanding of heat transfer. <laughs> You've got fresh water coming in under the fire the entire time, uh, fresh in the sense of temperature. And uh, this cooler water coming under the fire is, is not allowing water to heat up to any substantial depth. Um, and then uh, you know, we, we flew a lot of uh, drones and various things into the smoke, took samples. It was uh, several million dollars of study. and. Uh, that those kinds of efforts were good, but it was, wasn't until the Exxon Valdez when uh, I got a call to come down and see if we might be able to do a dispersant run and a burn. And we did both in the first uh, day or two. The, um, the burn was done with the only 500 feet of fire bloom that existed, I think, at that time. And we got it from the uh, Cook Inlet Response Op uh, organization there. And um, they managed to get it over to us very, very quickly. And uh, I left uh, the dock with 500 feet of boom, two boats. And uh, the guys on the boats were a little bit suspicious of me as I climbed aboard with a can of gasoline. And, and, uh, and, and a flare. And, you know, what I was calling fire boom. You're like, hey, guys, uh, anybody got a road flare in their car I can borrow? <laughs> Oh, we, we actually had something better than that. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> we, uh, we left the docks, went out, deployed the fire boom. These guys obviously had never 
worked with Aboom very much. They they were very good with fish nets and so on, but they uh, they weren't too good with Aboom. They tore it in half. In fact, we, we had to jury rig it and put it back together again. Anyway, we went out. It was uh, uh, towing for a little while. We filled it up with a whole bunch of oil. It was very easy. There was a lot of oil everywhere, and. Um, uh, it was starting to get dark. I was planning to use a helitorch, actually have a helicopter fly over, you know, and drop burning napalm or gelled fuel to ignite the oil it contained in the boom. But they um, uh, called us and said, well, you know, it's getting dark and we don't think the uh, the Admiral or anybody but Fan Center is going to approve this. Uh, you guys are going to have to come up with something else. In fact, we're not sure you should really light it. We're concerned about and uh, I said, well, look, why don't I just do a test burn? Oh, boy, I love that term, test burn. Little did they know that it, once it, I lit it. Right, it's going to keep burning, right? It's on its way, babe. Right, call it whatever, <laughs> put whatever adjective you want in front of the, in front of the word burn. But, you know, we're miles offshore. Um, we're surrounded by water. Uh, I made sure that we were not in pro close proximity to any other oil snakes. We floated off to a separate area, and it was fairly clean water, and it was getting dark. It's you can always area. drop the toes, right? And as soon as it starts to spread oh, out, it'll probably oh, go out. Oh, there's so many things we could do. And, yeah. I, and I'd walked through all these uh, precautions with the guys on board. They were pretty comfortable finally with doing this. And so I said, okay, we've got another way we can ignite this. And we got permission to do this so-called test. So I pulled out my sandwich I had in a little baggie and I happened to have my gasoline with me. I poured about a cup of gasoline into the little Ziploc baggie and of course I don't go anywhere as a good uh, burn specialist without my surefire powder. Uh, I had a little capsule of that. I poured that into the baggie and massaged it and within about a minute I had a, a little baggie of uh, napalm. And so uh, we just leaned out over the stern of the boat with this U-shaped boom configuration behind us. And then by now it's it's dark. And um, I took a little Bic lighter and lit the baggie. And of course it caught fire quickly. So I tossed it into the water and, uh, and it started to float away. Well, that little baggie of burning gelled fuel just drifted back and we had long tow lines out being very, very careful to have like, you know, well over 500 maybe even 700 foot of tow line. By the time he got back there, you could barely see this little speck of light. And after a few minutes, everybody was like, oh, what a disappointment. This is just not working. I said, well, hang on, hang on. If it heats the oil enough, it'll start to spread, yep. sure enough. Got to get it above its flashpoint. It caught off and burned. And I'll tell you, within about 10 minutes, we had 300 foot high fire. We had flames just roaring. These guys were having a ball. I mean, they were attaching marshmallows to their various uh, boat hooks, you know, and pretending to be roasting marshmallows off the stern of the boat. Yeah, because who doesn't like to burn things? I mean, yeah, it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was exciting. And all the time I'm thinking, here we are doing in a real spill event, what we've practiced now several times. And uh, I had ca captured enough information of the roughly the uh, thicknesses of oil going in, the time that the oil burned, 
and all the factors I needed in order to make an estimate. And we ended up saying that we burned between 15 and uh, 30,000 gallons. And it took about an hour. Very, very efficient. When it was over, I went back, we picked up with pitchforks. Uh, we could pick, pick up this very highly viscous plastic-like residue and put it in bags. But still buoyant. It's not sinking. Oh, yeah. It was, it was still floating, but, you know, most, most burn residues will sink. Uh, with time. They've lost their lighter ends. They're usually uh, heavier than the surrounding water, and they will sink. And, and, and that's a negative, of course, if you do it in an area that's shallow, and uh, it, it could suffocate. But again, it's the scale of this. How big of an area could be impacted by that? So that was, it's your question, that was the very first burn that we did. And then, and you used up your only 500 feet of fire boom. Oh, we did. Oh, it was in sad shape by the end of the. And did burn. it last? I mean, how long did the fire burn and, you know, how long did this fire boom hold up? Well, it burned for about an hour. And, uh, and we could have done, I would say, maybe one or two more burns with it before it would have started leaking seriously. But, uh, you know, the. We went back, we got permission, showed the videotape that I had of the entire burn. And um, sometime I'll have to show that to you. The whole burn. It's, uh, it's fantastic. But anyway. Uh, you still have uh, it, the video. Yeah, I have the video. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, from that time on, people started to believe that this really has some potential. So we went on, there were a number of other uh, very large scale burns that were done as experimental issues. We developed fire boom. I actually got a patent on a water fire boom. See, our, our booms were not lasting very long because when you start to get up to around 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, um, even some of the best of high temperature fabrics, um, tiles and various things that we tried are going to break down. And um, so, I discovered through some rather interesting experiments that if you kept the surface of the boom saturated, it, it could even be a very uh, low cost fabric, I mean, like cotton, if you will. And you could have this uh, material on your boom just sprayed with water or saturated from within the boom so that it stays wet. And as a result, never goes above about 212, um, you know, boiling point of the water near it as, as it uh, releases uh, steam and keeps itself at that temperature. So, so, the, uh, so how did you apply the water? Drag a soaker hose out of your garden and duct tape it to the top of the boom? How'd you do very, this? You're very close, very close. <laughs> now we just hey, basically- Hey, honey, that, that hose you're using in the garden, I, I, I'm taking that. Yeah, I'm taking that now. <laughs> Well, actually, it's very similar to that. We, uh, it took me several years to figure out the best way to do it, but I finally found a, uh, a way to put hose within the boom close to the surface material with holes in it. And it's the size of the holes, the rate of the water flow needed in order to uh, keep that outer layer saturated. And all of the problems that go into creating a boom of significant length with enough uh, water-fed hoses within it, you know, it, it takes a good three to four inch fire hose 
along the bottom of the boom to supply the water. And you're, you're pulling that out of the sea. You're using seawater that's pumped back into the boom and up into these uh, tubes all through it. And so um, along with the boom sense. itself, you're bringing a you're bringing a power pack and a submersible pump all attached to the to boom to provide the water. Exactly. Okay. And and then you have redundancy. We would put uh, pumps on both of uh, the towing boats so that uh, if one failed, you had the other to supply water to the boom because that boom would uh, burn up, you know, very very quickly if it dried out. But with water applied, how long would it last? How many burns could you do in a day with a single piece of, of fire boom that's water cooled? Well, during the deep water horizon, we, we had situations where we would do uh, 10 to 14 burns on a given boom. And then many times all you had to do is replace the downstream uh, most portion of the boom that's in the apex of the boom because it would be the hottest down there the longest. You just replace maybe 50 foot sections of the fire boom and not the entire boom. So, were you using your patented water cooled boom during Deepwater Horizon? Yes, along with about three or four other uh, water, not water cooled, but fire uh, resistant booms. Because yeah, I've seen a couple, one that's you know, like a conveyor belt material and the buoyancy is provided by what looks like, you know, a stainless steel salad bowls glued <clears throat> to the side of it you know it's big yeah um horrible yeah. To, to store and stack that stuff but i suppose once it's in the water it is effective well it, they were i mean several uh, not several a couple of booms um were, were reasonable in, in terms of the number of burns we could get out of them. uh nowhere near what the water cooled boom did but it, uh, they did help us a lot and uh we ruled out a couple of other booms that didn't work at all. They just simply didn't perform as the manufacturer had hoped. So after Exxon Valdez, you did this. You did this burn. You went on to do some some other burns. Exxon Valdez is over, and you've got all of this experience and data. Where'd you go from there? Just uh, field trials. That's all we could do was get permission to go out with controlled burns and continue to train people on this technique and to you know, improve the, uh, the booms and the procedures, the techniques, and to continue to deal with those who felt that the impacts may be severe. There were still people who felt the possibility for some sinking burn residue and the uh, temporary release of black smoke or things that uh, just they, they, they thought might be uh, lasting significant impacts. And it turns out they're not. So, you know, depend, maybe they get that impression because you know, when, when firefighters are working in house fires or <clears throat> industrial fires, depending on what's burning, the toxic components of that smoke can be pretty severe. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can have, yeah. depending on what's burning, you can have hydrogen sulfide, phosgene, you can have all kinds of things, but you're burning petroleum hydrocarbons. So what, what are the kinds of components that you might see if you are measuring for, for toxic content in the smoke? Well, you know, thank God we have a genius. And I, and I hope 
I know that he'd be uh, pleased that I mentioned his name, Murfingus in Canada. Uh, it truly is a uh, extremely sharp and intelligent guy. And he, he was helping to run a lot of our tests that we did. And he, had, he was testing for every conceivable um, uh, component that could result uh, in release to the air. He found, you know, as simply as I can put it, that nearly all of the uh, products of combustion were down to safe levels within a couple of hundred meters downstream, downwind of the burns that we did. And we did some really sizable burns. And um, the, the big problem, of course, was the, uh, the visible part. Again, people were concerned about the black smoke. Perception. And yeah, and that, of course, would last for sometimes miles downwind until it got down to concentrations that even there was, was not uh, harmful. You'd have to rent a hot air balloon in order to go up and try to hang around in the plume in order to have an impact, I think, for a human being. So, I mean, most of the time, the uh, particles within the plume itself in the air were only dangerous or, you know, potentially uh, impactful to human lungs if you were to get into it and stay into it for a long period of time. Uh, within, oh, let's say a quarter of a mile to a half a mile downstream, downwind of these burns. And very quickly, these uh, plumes would just uh, become a light gray and, uh, and disappear. Well, during the Deepwater Horizon, of course, we were burning many times uh, multiple burns at once. So we were creating some pretty significant uh, black cloud events, but even there, the duration of those plumes um, and uh, their appearance where we were working was totally acceptable. We did not have any exposure to people in the boats who were conducting the burns. We monitored that, measured the smoke plumes down at sea level uh, or to see if there was any sign of uh, fallout from these plumes. And, and it just was not an impact. Well, and so, you were, what, we were 80 miles offshore? Well, 40, yeah, 30, and, 40 miles. And, you know, you were working in your own designated box, so yeah. you know, other responders weren't in the area, and you were heading into the wind. Was there ever a need for respiratory protection while you were out there? Never. We, we had the ability to do it, but uh, it turned out we didn't need to. After days of measuring... Uh, it was decided that we did not need to do that. We were always towing into the wind or at a slight angle off from uh, going into the wind. So the, the plumes were always blowing away from us as well, from the two boats. So what does a burn task force look like? As I go out there, I'm getting ready, at putting my gear together and getting ready to do a, a burn. What does it take to get one of these burns off the, off the ground, if you will? Well, really, uh, it, just your two towing boats. And, uh, you know, these can, we use shrimp boats, say 40, 40 to 50 foot uh, uh, shrimp boats. Twin engines are ideal, of course. Um, and then what they're doing is towing about a 500 foot piece of boom. Uh, you need to have backup booms. So you'd like to have a larger supply boat that could have backup booms and be able to lift the booms out of the water at the end of the day. If they needed repair, bring them on board, do some work on them, and then have them ready for 
occurrence the following days, uh, you, you'd probably combine, if you don't have too many burns going on at once, that one backup supply boat might be your offshore command center to oversee the burns and approve each one as it's, as it's uh, attempted. Um, to coordinate as well with aerial surveillance. Uh, I was flying uh, almost every day, in addition to some of the work down on at sea level, to guide the boats into the heaviest concentrations of oil so that our encounter rates were optimized and we could collect, you know, a thousand, several thousand barrels of oil within a half hour to an hour and then light it off and be done burning it within a half hour to an hour and then go off and with guidance from the air, we could then search and uh, interact with and capture another fill of the boom. So you, you need that backup supply boat. You need to have aircraft for guidance. Um, and then you, you might have additional boats, uh, small boats that can be your igniter boats. Uh, these could be stored on the uh, backup supply boat. Uh, these are uh, rigid hull inflatables, very typically 14 footers, for example. And uh, these guys can run up and drop handheld igniters into the uh, oil on the upwind side of the contained oil. No more, no more no, lunch sandwich baggies and gasoline? <laughs> Could have been done if we had to, but now the guys were jury rigging uh, uh, and making up igniters all through the night. We had crews that were making these things out of uh, half gallon storage plastic bottles, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, using marine flares taped to the side of those units. So you have the, a separate boat, a separate group that's actually going in and doing the igniting. You're not dropping the igniters off the back of the towboats any longer at this point? No. No, we didn't need to. We actually uh, found it more efficient because the placement of the igniter could be more exact. If you drop them in from the towing boats, you run the risk that the igniter would drift uh, out, out of the uh, entrance to the capture area for the oil. Wind might pick it up and blow it off and it would be wasted. So you could just drop the igniter by hand right over the side. It was very safe to do. The oils that we had captured had weathered and emulsified. Uh, there was no danger of a rapid uh, explosion or rapid ignition, you know, of the oil. It would take place very slowly. And they would still drop the igniters in upstream and let them drift back into the oil. So how long did it take to bring the oil that was captured in the boom up to its flashpoint? Well, what, what what roughly was the flashpoint of that? That I'm sure it varied a little bit, but what what roughly was the flashpoint of the oil that was captured once it had weathered? Any idea? That oil was so difficult because many times it was between I'd say thirty or forty percent to seventy percent water in oil emulsion. I mean, it was a very very difficult uh, oil normally to burn. However, we could drop in two or three igniters and let those drift back so that typically within two to three minutes, the oil surrounding that igniter would heat up to the point where we could break the emulsion. And as the water broke out of the emulsion, the remaining oil was then relatively easily uh, 
brought to its, uh, its fire point where it could then sustain combustion. Um, but those, those, to answer your question, typically only a few minutes. On rare occasions, uh, the oil was so emulsified that uh, we, we were unsuccessful in igniting it. So, but that was pretty rare. We almost always had successful ignition of consumed uh, emulsion. When you were out there, once you were igniting, were you, even though you had through studies, identified the kinds of toxics that were in the smoke and how long it would last and how far away you needed to be and had a really good feeling for what safe was, did you continue to monitor during the uh, burns themselves? Oh yes, we were required to monitor with designated uh, fire monitors, and that, that is people. Uh, designated as safety personnel as well as fire monitors and visually and with uh, often with um, um, video recording these burns and we were recording it from the air as well. Uh, we had videos and still photography and we needed that throughout a burn in order to record the size of the burn that is the area of actual burning oil as a function of time, so that at the conclusion of a burn, we could estimate the volume of oil that was eliminated. Because we know what the burn rate is for a given area. So once the burn was, was over, did your tow boats go back and recover the residue or did you have another team for that? The, the tow boats would stay out overnight and they would, um, either be in a drift mode or, you know, uh, tie off to maybe one of the large uh, supply boats or, or other groups. But they uh, sometimes would leave the boom if it was in good shape, they would just string it out and let it remain behind the boat and them under a very slow uh, uh, movement forward, just keep that boom strung out. And, and there, you know, we would watch out for any other uh, boats that would come into the area to be sure they didn't run over the boom at night. It would have been nice to have lights strung out on those booms, but uh, we never did come up with any really good solutions for lighting those booms. Just gillnet lights? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to attach lights to a, a grungy, blackened. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet, that, I'll bet that's true. What about the people recovering the residue that when the when the burn was over? How what kind of volume of of uh, you know? floating plastic basically was still in that pocket. Ah, you fit on a very sensitive subject then. For a while, there were people who were very upset with us for the decision made at sea, but approved through command to not attempt to recover the burn resident. It was determined that the amount of time and resources, people and equipment and boats to go and try to collect that burn residue was just not worth it compared to the volume of oil that we could burn off if we let it go and just went after then new fresh oil to burn. And, and I really had to agree with that completely. Another reason why that was a good decision is that the residue that resulted from many of our burns only had a surface life expectancy of minutes. So that I doubt that we could have gotten to very much of it to recover it. 
Like I said earlier, burn residue typically sinks with time. And what keeps it afloat is a lot of the uh, bubbles of air that have become trapped in the uh, burn residue. And, and these just ooze out of the residue quickly, released to the air, and then of course the uh, remaining residue sinks. So uh, I think it was the best approach. We didn't have to recover it. We didn't waste time. The amount was very small compared to the amount we burned. And uh, it, that was a good decision. When you're looking at whether to, to burn or not, I think in that offshore environment, it was a no brainer. But what about in San Francisco Bay, Long Beach Harbor, Puget Sound? Well, what are the limitations? What would make you decide, yeah, we probably aren't going to burn? Just the perception of the smoke or proximity to, to uh, population densities? What would yeah. be the limits? Well, that, that always goes into a burn plan for a given region. And, uh, you know, you're going to have conditions where you say, look, we're not going to burn anywhere within maybe two or three miles of populated areas. Uh, if for any reason it was deemed uh, safe to do so, and say you're a mile away from a populated area, the only way you were going to do that is if the winds were constantly monitored and they were blowing any residue, any black smoke uh, away from those populated areas. And as you know, the burns are over quickly. So it's not like you have to worry about this going on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, you can stop a burn even if you have to by speeding up and dumping the oil, uh, release one end of the boom, any, anything to uh, put this uh, fire out. But we would monitor that, make sure that we are a safe distance from any populated areas. Warnings were always put out to uh, uh, over the marine channels and to people onshore. It was always well announced. So, or those were the plans, should we ever have to do a burn away. ASTM has a standard for in-situ burning. Did you have a role in writing that uh, that standard? Or do you, do you use that standard when you're putting burn plans together? Yes, we do. Yeah, and, and yes, I do ha have had input on the, what are the criteria by which uh, such standards should be Yes. So are you still available for burns out? Do they still call you? Does your phone oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go to see and do a burn, but I, <laughs> I've got to admit, I, I'm enjoying retirement. And, uh, you know, the pandemic came along just that, well, there's no such thing as the right time. There's never a right time for a pandemic. But in my career, it, it was right at the end of the time when I turned about 80, 81, where I thought, Eh, it's time to sell our house, move to a smaller home in a senior community, play more golf, finally write my book that I've wanted to do for like 40 years, and just, uh, you know, relax. And so the answer is yes, I would be tempted to go burn some oil at sea, but I think I would rather be an advisor, um, maybe fly over and uh, check out what's going on and offer advice. Maybe spend a day in the command center, but uh, no, I don't want to get too heavily involved in the operations anymore. But we can still call you. You'll pick up the phone. Oh, you got it for sure. I'd be excited to do so. Yes. Uh, your company, Spiltech, is it still in operation, still exists, or have you uh, 
put it in layup, as we say. Well, I get thing guess wrong. what? Guess what? I still have Alan at spilltech.com, and I use that for everything unrelated to my book. Uh, so now I have another email, which is author at gmail.com. And so I'm now getting responses because the book's only been out, what, about a month, month and a half? Uh, I'm getting responses from people who are saying, hey, uh, I really like chapter six and could you expand on that? And let's talk about it. So I'm getting a lot of feedback and uh, having fun doing book reviews and that kind of thing. So I needed that other email address. And with time, maybe SpillTech uh, will get less traffic and hopefully A.A. Allen author will get more traffic. Well, Al, that's, we've talked about it since you burning. Let's talk about the book. Tell us, <laughs> what's the title of the book? You said it's been out a, a month and a half. What, what is the title and, and what is the, the topic? You've been waiting well, for years. 30 years to write it and finally it's on, yeah. the, it's on well, the shelves. Let's say it took 30 to 40 years to organize my thoughts and accumulate all the notes of the past 80 years of experiences pull it all together, but it only took me about nine months to write the book. Uh, the title is Clues Can Light the Way. Clues Can Light the Way. And it's got a subtitle that reads, A Discovery of Clues for the Greatest Puzzle of All, The Purpose of Life and Beyond. And that so- sounds like, with a title like that, that seems like a book everyone should read. <laughs> Who doesn't want to know what the purpose of life is? Well, I have to confess, it's, the title has caught a lot of eyes. Uh, it seems to be a strong interest in it. I'm delighted at that. Obviously, if you've ever written a book, you know you don't do this to get rich. I've discovered that, you know, say a book sells for 12, 13 bucks. If you as an author make $2, 250, you're really lucky. <laughs> so it would take me many thousands of books in order to break even on what I've spent to get it published. But, uh, but that's okay, you don't do it for the money, you do it for the reasons that to me were most satisfying. And that is, uh, all my life, I've had such mysterious things happen to me. I mean, uh, things that relate to uh, kind of the spiritual side of things. I, I was very religious in my early years, uh, going to church every Sunday and a very strict interpretation of the Bible and so on. And, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that but for me at that time as the years went on I began to become more spiritual in, in interpreting why things happened to me the way they did um, I had near misses with uh, drownings um, with uh, fire with freezing to death um, you know a good uh, what 16 to 18 times I, I should have died and, and I selectively went through these experiences and pulled off the, the uh, events that I think thought were the most meaningful. Um, things that really impacted me more in terms of uh, changing my perspective on the path I was on. Well, what was the reason for these things? And, and it, you know, career changes, uh, marital changes, um, near, near deaths and injuries. Um, even characteristics in my own self, phobias that I had. Um, I'll tell you, for a long, long time as a kid, I was deathly afraid of the, the dark. 
you know, up till 10 or 12 years of age and um, deathly afraid of uh, speaking in front of a group. I mean, it sounds strong to say deathly, but I would just freeze up. Uh, even in college, I had difficulty speaking to a group. And um, all of these things, you know, uh, affected me in terms of saying, why are these happening? Why do these unexpected and mysterious events uh, come into play? Do they have subtle and maybe profound messages for my own spiritual growth? And so that's why I kept track of these events. And I would write them down. And through the years, I would share them with family around a Thanksgiving dinner or some evening at the house. And, and uh, you know, my grandkids and then my great-grandkids are they're saying, Grandpa, you got to write that down. You should write a book. And so I finally did. And what I found was that by doing a timeline of from the time I was roughly two to three years of age, because some crazy events happened back then, four, five years old. I mean, I got hit by a car. I should have died. Uh, it was a serious impact. And, and, and then on through the years to uh, times when I was in a car covered, the car totally covered with snow freezing to death and um, had totally passed out, was so close to death. And yet a guy who drove a snowplow in that region was awakened in the middle of the night by a voice that said, get up and start your run now. And uh, that's a whole chapter in the book, what happened. And he fought that, he fought it. He thought he was having a horrible, disastrous he couldn't, you know, unexplainable dream, and then yet it was a voice. And he finally caved into it and went off and started his run. And then the voice told him where to go and when to stop and go check that car. And it turns out that I and a friend of mine from college were in that car and he saw us and got us awake enough and moving enough that he could uh, pull the car out from the drift and take us down the road to a, a family he knew where they put us up for the night. A few more hours in that condition, and I think we would have been goners. How, do, how, did he, how did he feel about that? How did he relate that experience? I'll tell you, that guy would not talk to me. Uh, when he dropped us off at that, uh, it was a bar, actually, and he knew the owner, and the, the guy was like, what are you doing? Waking me up in the middle of the night. He said, hey, I found these two guys. They're freezing. Uh, can they come in? And then he started to leave. And I ran after him. I grabbed him. I said, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I don't even know your name. What? What's going on here? How did you find us? And he said, and he pushed me away. He said, never mind. Leave me alone. And he started to leave. And I grabbed him again. I said, no, 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 no. You're not getting away. What's going on? Well, Make a long story short, I finally got him to sit down and tell me the details of the story and exactly what this voice said to him. And he was scared crap. He just really? was so nervous and worried about that he was going crazy. But when he saw the, us there and that he saved our lives, he said, man, you sure have a friend upstairs. I remember him pointing up toward the sky, saying, you've got a friend upstairs. And that friend had a purpose for you. Or it might have been a purpose for your friend. We really don't know, do we? Yeah, yeah, maybe my friend was more valuable. But anyway, <laughs> we both survived 
And you know, when you have enough of those events in your life, and I had so many of them, uh, it's the connections with people, it's the interconnectedness of us all. Um, and, and then just even subtle little things. Uh, oh God, my, my kids, when they were in the phases between five and seven years old, would say the darndest things that really captured my attention. And those are in the last chapter of the book, it's called Nuggets of Gold. I couldn't believe the things that they would say. Uh, my youngest son, Andrew, would say things that I think he was on the verge of uh, being asleep and or awakened, passing into sleep. And I believe that his soul somehow came through and said things that were so profound that he couldn't believe the next day that he said it. He still can't believe to this day. He doesn't remember it. But I wrote it down that night. And uh, three of the things he did and said, uh, I recorded even way back then when he was a little guy. That's 30, 40 years ago. And then to top it all off, one of the key chapters of the book is uh, my dad. He contacted me from the other side. He had died. And uh, I, I got a message while we were living in Alaska. My current wife, Anda, 40, almost 47 years now, we lived in Alaska 15 years, and uh, one day I'm sitting at my job, and a knowing came over me. And the concept of knowings I talk about considerably in the book because many times knowings, uh, a calming of my mind, make me do the right thing at the right time to save my life, are in some of the chapters. But in this knowing, I received a message. It wasn't a voice, but it said, the, the knowing was, go home. And I knew it wasn't to my home in Anchorage there, but my home where my parents are back in New Jersey. And that's a whole chapter, so I can't bore you with that now. But let's say I responded to it because it would not leave me alone until I made the arrangements. I went back and I discovered that my dad had and it was a few weeks before I could actually get there because of the new job and everything. And when I got there, my dad said, and he greeted me at the door, son, I am so glad you came, as if he knew I was coming. By then I had almost forgotten why I was going back there. I thought, this is weird. I went back to attend a conference. I made that up. Well, there really was a conference and I went to it briefly, but I really was going back because of this feeling, not knowing what it was about. Anyway, he said, I'm so glad you came. And we sat down that night and my dad said, after my mom went to bed, he said, so got up and he sat down next to me. He would never have done that before. He was a crusty old guy. We had a very distant relationship. He sat down next to me, put his hand on my knee and he said, son, a couple of weeks ago I died. And I looked at him like, whoa, what have you been drinking? <laughs> what are you on, man? And he laughed and he said, no. He said, uh, I'm glad you came. We need to talk. And we sat for hours and hours as he told me the, the entire event of his death, what it was like seeing his body in the hospital, making the transition, being met by his brother on the other side who had died earlier that year. And the things that he learned from the creator, as he put it, the source of universal love, uh, creator of all that is. He never really said God, but 
He referred to it as a brilliant, intense light. The messages that he got from that light were so profound. And let's see now, that's over 40 years ago. So I was I was close to 40 years old when that happened. And I I wrote down everything he said during that evening event the next day on the way back, flying back to Alaska. And that's an entire chapter in my book because that changed my life. That so made me realize that all of these mysterious things in my life have purpose and that I have purpose. And the doubts I had about consciousness, even surviving death, were now put to rest. I really believe that my dad could not have made this story up. And it's so consistent with the experiences of others that have had NDEs, near-death experiences, that truly, um, it, it changed my life. And I, um, I feel like writing this book is critical to the end purpose for me. Uh, it's not to say that now that the book's written, I can go ahead and plan on croaking. I don't mean that. <laughs> I'd like to live another 15, 20 years. It'd be nice to see my most recent grandson. He's only three years old. I'd love to see him graduate from college. So I hope to live a long time. But in the meantime, I, I feel like my objective is to not talk about oil spills as much as I talk about the purpose of life and how each of us is interconnected with a grand scheme of things. So it includes can light the way. Have, have you addressed at all what is the nature of consciousness? I mean, you mentioned consciousness. There's yeah. a lot of debate of you know, what consciousness actually is the, the Buddhists believe they know and others take a stab at it. Science has taken a, a whack at it. Do you have an opinion? I do. And it's based on what my dad was told. Um, when he asked the question of the light, he said, why am I here? What, what, what's this all about? What, why do I even, why do we people go to earth? And the answer was, go to earth for two simple reasons, to love and to learn. And my dad was curious about that and explored it further with the light, coming up with information that revealed that for each of us, our consciousness, everything that we think, say, or do in a lifetime is remembered with precision on the other side. You have absolute perfect recall of every thought, word, and deed. And you, according to my dad and what he was told, you don't go to hell if you had a lot of bad things. They outweigh the good. Uh-uh. You go into a stage of self-assessment, he was told. And you will self-assess your conscious awareness of all of those things. And through it, you will learn. And you will get another chance to improve on it. And I think that consciousness is that memory of everything that we ever think, say, or do. And um, 
through that experience, we, we get closer to, I think, a condition where eventually this world, if that attitude and that knowledge can spread widely enough, it's, it's almost like uh, uh, the herd concept with the virus, that if we can become inoculated, not only to have enough people uh, saved or let become somewhat immune toward a virus, if enough people can have the knowledge of why we are here and the purpose of life and the purpose for their own soul growth, I think we'll reach a point where we have a herd immunity to hate and fear and greed and all of those things that make this world less desirable. So I think that I have been given the challenge to write this book and to spread the word and to give book reviews and podcasts and other, other ways of just communicating with people to stop and think about their life and what are the clues in their own life that might give them insight as to why they're here. What were their turning points in their life? So with this assessment uh, period and, and an opportunity to improve, that sounds like the Buddhist perspective of reincarnation, to continue to, uh, I guess, take another stab at it until yeah. enlightenment is uh, yeah. achieved. And do you believe that that is uh, the, the route that, the, the, that we are on? that continual improvement until through our self-assessment, we say, ah, I, I, I did it. I'm satisfied with that. I think it is. I, uh, I, I do believe that all of the uh, spookiness of life as we might think of them, things like as premonitions and kind of our connections with people, uh, near-death events, uh, synchronicity, all of these things in life that are hard to define are part of the process of realizing that we are one and that there will be a critical mass someday when there will be enough people who believe in this that we will work toward. Sounds corny, but peace on earth. And, and I'd love to be as optimistic as that. Let's face it, for me, for decades, I fought all of this stuff I'm talking about because of my science background. I love having an equation for something and I can put some values in it and solve it and come out with an answer and then prove something. And I can't prove anything that I have written in this book. There's no proof of anything. Boy, when you add up, all of the events of my life and all of the connections I've had with people and traveling to what, well over 50 countries in the 50 plus years that I worked as an oil spill specialist, there was a reason for that. And there's a reason I remember it. There's a reason I wrote down good notes on it. And I think there was a reason for writing this book. And uh, it's been exciting. Can't prove it, but I, uh, I sure have a lot of uh, joyful hope. 
Well, I hope you get that additional 15 or 20 years to, to share that with your grandkids and your great grandkids. Clues that light the way available. I got it on Kindle. So yes. Yeah, oh, so, good. Good for you. Yeah. So I'll, I'll read it that way, but available on, on Amazon. Al Allen, thank you so much for taking the time to share your history of oil spill response and your journey to enlightenment. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word. Send a tweet, tell a friend, post it to Facebook. If you've got a topic idea, you want to be on the show, you can email me at dansmiley at mac.com. Be safe, wear a mask, now get back to work.